Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. On this week's episode, we welcome the co-founder and CEO of Boulevard, Matt Dana, to discuss how he is disrupting the beauty and wellness industry with vertical SaaS. Matt shares how his obsession with creating things as a child led him down the path of being a product-focused leader when he joined his first start at Fullscreen, and how the nagging of his co-founder's unwillingness to get a haircut led him to his next start at Boulevard. Matt shares how we initially researched the problems facing operators in the industry and what kind of research hacks Matt and his co-founder implemented in order to get as much insight from their future customers as possible, even before launching their first MVP. We cover why Matt and his co-founder decided to liquidate their retirement accounts to bootstrap the business for the first year and why he delayed hiring a sales team until they had product market fit. Finally, Matt and I discuss how he was able to eventually raise over $100 million in funding and keep the business afloat during COVID when all of his customers were being forced to shut down. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's episode with Matt Dana from Boulevard. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Matt. Thanks so much for being here. Also, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I know, very confusing, but super excited to have you in the tank today to learn more about your journey in building one of the biggest platforms supporting the beauty and wellness industry. But before we jump right in, it would be great if you can give our audience a brief background on your, yourself and how you made your way into the tech and startup industry. Absolutely. Young age, always been interested in, in technology, but also uh, art at the same time. And so have been a, a left-brainer, right-brainer type my whole life. Ended up, you know, trying to figure out which college to go to based on like, do I go for computer science or do I go for graphic design? Ended up doing both, essentially. I uh, turned uh, computer science into what I wanted to do for for my career, uh, but then also was able to, you know, keep up with uh, design for uh, hobby. Uh, and those two things have been interwoven into my whole life uh, in my entire career. And so I've always been focused on building technology for creative individuals, uh, so artists and creators and started with uh, visual artists and then helped YouTube creators uh, monetize on YouTube before they could monetize directly. And now I'm helping artists uh, very much in the personal care space grow their business. And so really big fan of, of that. And technology is uh, so fun to just be able to you know, write some code and, and ship value immediately. And like, that's so addicting that I couldn't imagine doing anything else with my life. Now, I love that left brain, right brain overlap that you described. It sounds like, you know, your passion for creating creative things and building great products has always been the driving force behind everything you've done in your career. But where do you think that passion comes from and, and how have you been able to evolve as a product leader over the years? Did it come from, you know, your parents or just you know, siblings or anyone you are surrounding yourself with to think about building great creative products? My parents and siblings are fantastic, but they're they're not in tech uh, at all. <laughs> my dad's a police officer. My mom's a nurse. My sister's also a nurse. So um, they, my dad has this, uh, he always asks me, like, when are we building our next app? And I'm like, it, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> I get a lot of um, you know, gratification uh, from just providing value from um, folks, and especially those that, like, aren't able to build that value themselves. You know, like we don't have salon owners that are, are building software. Just being able to show them what's possible with technology and blow their minds. Like I find that so gratifying and so exciting. It, it just fuels me to come to work every day. So growing up, you know, around a police officer and medical nursing family, the passion for building products was just something that was innate in your own DNA that just came out, uh, I guess, early on. Yeah, I don't know. That's crazy. <laughs> my parents think I'm a freak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I mean, your last startup that uh, I believe was called Full Screen was focused on supporting YouTube creators before there was this YouTube creator 
kind of platform uh, where you were the VP of product. And that's where you found uh, your recent co-founder, Boulevard. Can you tell us about the story about how you and your co-founder, George, were inspired to consider the beauty and wellness industry as potentially a problem to solve? Uh, so George was our founder of uh, Full Screen, but Sean is actually my co-founder. So he was the VP of engineering. Uh, and the story behind Boulevard was that there was a week where his hair was just a complete disaster. And we were uh, working on a project and I ended up, you know, making fun of him uh, like a good colleague does. And like, dude, your hair is a disaster. Like, go get a haircut. And he said he kept forgetting to call his salon to make an appointment during the day. Uh, and at night when he remembered, the salon was closed. And we were just, you know, I, pontificating about like why that is the problem uh, in like in this day and age, like why do you have to make phone calls to book appointments? Like it, it's so inconvenient and like didn't understand why there was that friction. And we're like, you know, the total millennials in us were like, they'd make so much more money if like they just figured out how to make their businesses um, more accessible. There's got to be an app for that as most millennials will say. Yeah. Exactly. There has to be. Um, and we didn't find any good answers. Like we couldn't find an app. We were looking for like an open table for appointments app. Didn't exist. And like if you go to any of you know the businesses that do help you looking for your best, um, generally the call to action is to call. Um, and sometimes they'll have like a web form where you can submit uh, an email and maybe hear back. We got particularly curious about that problem to the point where we were getting brunch this one weekend and we were right near uh nearby there's a few salons and a, and a spa and we ended up walking in and asking them a bunch of questions we said that we were ucla students working on a research project uh, and asked them how they handle appointment scheduling and we were like expecting that they'd all be on pen and paper but that wasn't the case at all they were uh, all on technology um, and what blew our minds even more was that they were on technology that was capable of online booking. Uh, but when asking them, do you, like, do you use that? Uh, they would resoundingly say, no, like we can't use that. It hurts our business. Like we'd get this like emotionally charged response back. And like my co-founder and I, we were like scratching our head. We're like, what is going on there? Like there's, there's something very powerful just like this with them. They feel like uh, they, the response was like very emotionally triggered. And so Something powerful, we're like, not sure if it's like a technology problem or if it's like a user error type of problem. So we went and talked to many, many more businesses over the course of a few weekends. And ultimately, what we ended up learning was that when you call to make an appointment, the front desk is doing yield optimization, essentially, in real time. And so they're looking to see, like, who are you? Have you been at the business before? If so, what service did you get? Who were they with? How long exactly did those services take? They're looking to see, are you on time? If not, they're going to give you a fake start time. It's called trick booking. Um, if you've no-showed in the past, they're going to put you at the end of the day so they can dismiss the hourly wage staff early. And most importantly, they're looking to see when they can double and triple book you so they can be working with multiple clients at once. And they're making sure there's no gaps between appointments. All this logic was happening in real time in their brain uh, while you're on a call. Um, and you can experience this firsthand because they'll ask you what kind of time of day or day of week would you like to come in? But they're not asking you, like, what specific time would you like to come in? They're saying, can you come in at 11.15 or whatever? And that's because they're picking ideal spots to, to place you on the calendar. All of the solutions uh, and current technology that was available to the market and the online booking uh, features that they had had no business logic on top of the calendar. 
all of them kind of work like Calendly, where it's like grab any time on my calendar. Uh, and that would end up like really hurting their revenue significantly. And it's, it's material because these businesses are 5% profit margin. It's the average salon profit margin is 5%. So we did the rough math, basically took every uh, stylist as a unit. And if a single stylist had more than 45 minutes of downtime in a single day, that unit was negative for the day. So it's like very, very high stakes. They really can't have more than 45 minutes of waste or non-productive time in the day, you know, separate from breaks and that kind of stuff. We're like, this is super high stakes. Like, I don't know how these businesses are able to actually stay profitable. In computer science terms, like this is like a packing algorithm. Like they needed uh, uh, knapsack packing uh, to figure out how to like best pack the calendar with the constraints that are given. And that's when we kind of were like, okay, we can build this. I mean, uh, so many questions. I mean, first off, all these logics that you kind of were able to unravel feels like kind of taking one elastic off a big elastic ball and just being a huge mountain of other ones to kind of sift through. But, you know, you see salons and you see beauty, you know, parlors or ever everywhere uh, in the U.S., anywhere you look in every plaza, you know, hearing you say they operate on 5% margins is really shocking to me. I thought that these things would be way more profitable, even though they're not so busy. But, you know, being labeled as a, as a career product guy, obviously is an awesome thing to have, but it also makes you very cautious when deciding to work on your next big product idea, obviously for the fear of potentially building a product that somebody may never use or the market may never need it. So how did you initially validate all these different things about the space you were looking at to really understand there was a market here that had a bigger problem than just what you initially sought out for, which was like simple bookings, which was being offered for free. And what should our listeners understand were some of the hacks you did to get in the door besides faking being UCLE students? Yeah, I like highly recommend taking the student approach. It's extremely disarming. Uh, everyone wants to help a student. So the way that we validated it was we literally like we we went door to door and we talked to these businesses. When we like we were doing this like research and discovery, we were also validating like this was a problem that they would pay to solve. We got a ton of validation. Um, folks asking us like, if you know of anything, like let us know. We'd love to try it out. When we actually had a product, we just went back to those same people. We're like, hey, we built something. Can like we get your feedback on it? People were so excited. It was it was awesome. And like that it just felt like from that point on, the product was being pulled out of us. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, one, pretending you're a student obviously breaks down barriers and you know, takes down the fear of you being told no, because you're not selling anything. And then two, creating a list of people who were willing to talk to you as student researchers and saying, hey, we actually built something. Do you mind testing it without even selling it again? But I heard also in the early days, you actually offered to volunteer at the front desk of local hair salons to learn how they operate. I mean, what was that like? Yeah. So the, the businesses that said like, yes, we're in, we would go and work for a week or two before we launched them to make sure that we fully understood like their unique workflows as a business. Cause each one of these businesses operate like a little bit differently. And we wanted to make sure we weren't going to create any gaps or um, unfulfilled needs that they had when launching them. Uh, because our, our platform is a rip and replace. Like you can't really have two scheduling systems at once. There needs to be one source of truth. One day you're you're on the previous solution. The next day you're cut over to Boulevard. Uh, and so we really wanted to make sure like end to end we were uh, buttoned up. You know, we'd launch and then we'd work for a week or two, basically until they told us to like leave. They're like, we got this. You can go now. Um, and like that was just really, really profound and, and, and 
very much uh, foundational to the product that we have today. I mean, that's some serious customer onboarding support. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. And like, I think you have to do those things that don't scale in the early days, right? The amount of insights that we learned and a lot of the features that we built, we were never asked to build, but we saw like through direct observation, how their workflows could be improved. And so a tangible example of this, we're working at a very, very busy uh, salon in Beverly Hills. They have about 60 staff, generally like 35 to 40 at any given time. And their calendar is like the craziest Tetris board of like all these colors and everything. I was like, I don't know how you guys can handle this. And so like, you're supposed to know who's coming in next, right? Um, and then who's going to be leaving because you need to prep the ticket. And, and if they wanted to upsell products, like have that all ready to go. And so like, they were literally holding up a ruler to their calendar to try to figure out like, okay, who's coming in and who's leaving next. And we're like, this is baffling. Like, how are you doing this? And so we ended up creating just a Kanban style view of the calendar, um, which we call like our front desk view, which is like, here's everyone that's confirmed. Here's everyone that's arrived, but not yet being serviced. Who's in the chair. And then who's, which is like whoever's in the chair. And we sorted that by like, who's going to be leaving next the end time of the appointment. So all these appointments, you know, take a different amount of time. And so then you just drag them over to like checkout. Everyone, even to this day, like we'll demo that feature. Our prospects will say like, that's cute. We, we'll, we won't use that. And then we like, we'll ask them, how's it, how's that feature working out for them, for you? Like uh, a couple weeks after, like, we don't know how we live without this. Uh, so I think it's like listening to your market, but also like really, truly understand what the problem is that you're trying to solve. Totally. I mean, I just pictured the the front desk person holding up one of those big, like yellow rulers, blocking out obviously a couple rows below so that doesn't confuse them. And just seeing like where everyone is at that current time slot. You can think about this across so many different scheduling businesses, dental offices, doctor's offices, chiropractors, wherever. They're just overbooked and they're obviously understaffed. But I mean, just hearing you say, we weren't trying to build anything or sell anything until we really understood the problem. And the only way for us to understand the problem was sitting there and researching and watching how these people operate, which, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people in the software world can't do all the time. You know, your is a real world business here. So you could go to a physical location, sit there and watch them, you know, do their task. But, you know, what were some of the other big aha moments you discovered during your research period that allowed you to eventually get this thing off the ground? Like when we launched our MVP, basically smart scheduling, we ended up seeing that it was actually increased amount of no-shows for appointments. And for whatever reason, people that, you know, book online have a lower, because probably they have to do less work to actually book the appointment. So like they have a higher propensity to, to no-show and which we don't want to do because, you know, these businesses then losing a lot of money. And so we started capturing credit card uh, info at the time of booking, um, which all of our customers were like, no, like they'll never like clients will never book an appointment online if like you have to add their credit card details. And, and we challenged them, like, let's try it out. Uh, and uh, we did. And that eliminated no shows. It turned it from like a, a, a sizable problem to a uh, zero problem. And that alone, just capturing credit cards, let alone like, yes, we could charge them uh, if they no showed or whatever, but just capturing the credit card was a really, really important step. Uh, show of you know commitment that they intend to arrive at for that appointment. That's basically how we ended up falling into fintech because clients would arrive and they're like, I already gave my credit card uh, online. Like, 
you know, I already paid or like there was this confusion around like, did they pay or was it just a credit card authorization? And like, ultimately our customers were asking, hey, the card's already on file. You guys have it. Like, can we just check them out through Boulevard? Uh, and we're like, yeah, like building a point of sale shouldn't be too hard. Turns out point of sales are very hard. <laughs> uh, but um, <laughs> years later in hindsight, you know, that was, uh, we created a point of sale and, and now the majority of our, our revenue is actually from merchant processing. Well, I mean, we'll get into that in a moment, but talking about those sort of initial MVP launch, you know, how did you know you were ready to launch your initial MVP with that calendar product? And then how did you think about sort of layering more stuff or releasing more stuff quickly so that you could do a full rip and replace? Because I'm assuming no one was going to do a full rip and replace just on a calendar feature. Right. No, absolutely. You know, the whole playbook with vertical software is that you need to be an all-in-one solution uh, that especially in the, you know, the SMB space, they really want as much of, like they don't want a tech stack, right? Like they just want a single provider. The validation that we received was really, really profound. What we ended up just seeing was like the excitement in their eyes when like we had like our proof of concepts uh, and, and really, really validated that like it's something that they would pay for, that they found this very helpful, that they could anticipate it working. There was, of course, you know, the, the folks that were saying, you know, oh, this online booking will never work for my business. And like, we just use that as fuel. Like that gave us like, you know, this fire in our belly. We we're like, well, we want to show you that we can help the front desk just be so much more productive. So they can focus on like greeting guests and, and upselling them on products and like, basically the hospitality aspect of the front desk and not just like this calling uh, scheduling aspect. Um, and so like, it was, it was really, you could see it in their eyes and like, you could hear the excitement and like the curse words that they're saying. I'm like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Like at that point we're like, we, we knew we had something. And then it was just a, a matter of, you know, what are the other things we need to build in order to, to properly serve this customer. I love that. Just being there, physically seeing that reaction to something that you created and you built uh, probably reminded you of your days, you know, when you had to create sort of fun things for people you worked at uh, on the YouTube side of things. And that feeling never really goes away, you know, but I want to go back to the beginning because I, I heard it took you nine months to get your first real customer and you funded the business initially with your own 401ks and bootstrapped it. I mean, what was that experience like and, and how did you even recruit your first few employees to join your mission with not a lot of capital? When we received all this validation, we, we did quit our jobs. We did liquidate our 401ks. Uh, we went all in. It was like a scary move. My family thought I was nuts. Uh, they're like, you're leaving this like great job. You're an executive. Like, what are you doing? And I was like, I just see this problem that I couldn't unsee. From there, we had to like, we, before we quit our jobs, we had all this validation, right? Uh, that this was going to be a viable solution, uh, had our like kind of proof of concept. And so when we, when we left it, we did take about nine months to work up to like being production ready. Uh, and that just involved a ton of heads down design work and, and programming, uh, to build our MVP. And it was a, it was a slog. Like it, it took a lot of stuff. You had to build a lot of things in order to be able to displace a customer. Off, or a, a, a previous solution that was an incumbent in the market. It wasn't sexy. Uh, you know, we were full on ramen noodles uh, style. Like my parents, as you as I mentioned, like are, are I come from humble beginnings, right? I didn't have like a massive nest egg or anything to live on. Uh, and so just we were as scrappy as possible, lived like college students and, and really 
you know, knuckle down on, on trying to provide as much value as quickly as possible. So those were your first few employees were like college students. So a couple of our, our first employees, um, uh, we found actually on, on GitHub, uh, cause we were using their, a uh, couple of their open source projects and we emailed them. One was a college student. Another one was, um, a pre-seasoned engineer living in uh, Finland. And, uh, so approached both of them and we're like, Hey, like, would you be open to doing some contract work? Um, so we paid them, uh, as 1099s contractors, uh, for the, for, until we raised like our first round of friends and family. Wow. And how long was after, uh, the first 401k kind of withdrawals, did you get that friends and family capital? It was about a year. So a year bootstrapping it really with your own capital. Yeah. And like the friends and family was, you know, that comes in like breadcrumbs uh and it, it's it's mostly friends so my family doesn't have isn't in a place to do that you know former colleagues uh were really really helpful uh just believed in us and you know had those conversations of like okay like if this goes to nothing like you're you're not going to disown me right and so no it was, it was awesome though so about a year after uh which was we had our, our for our, a couple paying customers we had enough proof points to show like and, and to feel responsible that we were giving their money a, a good home. You know, we raised friends and family for about another year. And then we went and raised our, our joined an accelerator. Right. And, but I also heard that you stayed stealth for almost three years before publicly launching your product. And, and you didn't really hire any sales members uh, in the beginning at all. I mean, what was the thinking behind that? And what advice would you give to other founders at that early, early stage considering doing the same, like liquidating the, you know, the retirement accounts, raising just friends and family and not hiring salespeople and just doing all the work themselves or with like 1099 contractors. We didn't actually announce ourselves for three years because we had a pipeline of customers that were ready to sign up as soon as we had like enough of the features to support them. Uh, so we just thought that building out a, a full go-to-market function was going to be a distraction from what we thought was the most important, which was product development. So yeah, it was about a year after we closed our our seed round, actually, that we announced ourselves as like a startup, but we were stealth until then. And I, I think it's, you know, when, when doing a startup, one, you get to like be obsessed about the value you want to create. Like we were so fueled by solving this problem that seemingly like we were the only ones that saw this as a problem. So like that really fueled us. And like, I'd probably not recommend to like liquidate in 401ks. Uh, like it, it seems, uh, you know, irresponsible. But in our case, I don't know what we were thinking. Actually, I just think we were like, we have to do this and kind of at all costs, really, you know, you didn't use that to, to hire these, these contractors and help us move faster. Yeah. The best advice is don't ask for advice because you know what it's going to be. So just yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But the, the delaying of hiring salespeople, I really like that that thought process you went through. For our companies at Ripple, we invest at the very early stages too. Usually you first check in at the pre-seed, you know, 250, 500K or whatever. And we tell our founders like, don't do any sales hires because you don't have a go-to-market strategy figured out. You don't have the proper onboarding for a salesperson. And the founder-led sales is the best way to learn about the problem you're solving first so that you're building the right product for that problem to solve it, which is obviously what worked out for you. But it also worked out exceptionally well because Boulevard now has more than 25,000 professionals on your platform and power more than 2,000 salons, med spas, and other self-care businesses. So, you know, how were you able to evolve the business, as you said, from a traditional SaaS platform into a certified payments facilitator and fintech company? And what were some of the biggest challenges, as you mentioned earlier, 
faced during those years of trying to transition to a fintech company? A lot of questions there to unpack, but the uh, waited to hire sellers until we had some type of repeatable motion. To your point, like founder sales is highly effective. Uh, you know, people want to buy into the story, buy into the mission. You learn an incredible amount. Um, and I think as a founder, you need to be really thoughtful about what you are outsourcing at any given time, even to like another leader. I didn't want to outsource that for the longest time because I was just learning so much and kind of, you know, iterating so much on both the product as well as kind of how we positioned it, how we talked about it um, and didn't feel all that comfortable to bring in folks to own that until I really mastered it myself, um, which was like, honestly, completely out of my comfort zone as like an engineer <laughs> uh, learning sales, how to talk about pricing and stuff like that to, to prospects. I think it was all about, you know, really looking at uh, at the market and what our customers are telling us and then sequencing the way that we build product and where we choose to invest as a business, um, really on like whatever our customer is asking us for. So that's how we got into the fintech space. And, and we are now a payment facilitator. Um, so we've eliminated as many middle men as possible on the on the payment supply chain. It sounds like you really waited until you were being pulled by customers, which is the best, you know, a definition of product market fit for something that you hadn't even really built yet. Now, when you went down that vertical fintech path, did you hire consultants? Did you think about outsourcing everything? Did you know you wanted to build it in-house from scratch? A lot of people say they're a fintech company, but really they're kind of slapping together a bunch of third-party products to be a fintech company. You didn't seem to want to do that. So how did you navigate the the fintech journey? <laughs> Oh, we definitely did. Yeah, we sure. definitely did in the early days. It makes no sense to be a payment facilitator early on. There's really great platforms that you can write some code and start using their payments functionality within the same day. Besides Stripe, would there be any ones you recommend people who are thinking about a checkout? I think that Stripe is is the one to use as an early stage startup. For us, Stripe was actually prohibitively expensive uh, because... Credit cards in person have a much lower rate. People aren't going to sign up with us um, and pay 3%. Uh, that's like a non-starter. So at a certain point, Stripe's pricing really blocked our progress. And we, we had not much of a choice but to become our own master merchant and pay fact. So that was a very strategic, calculated decision that we made uh, right after our Series A. We had enough team. Um, I went and hired uh, an expert to lead our, our fintech strategy, we saw that like we could make a significant uh, margin, um, and it would more than double basically what we were making on on software. And thought that was a worthwhile investment to make. Um, and with our at the scale at the time, it made sense. Um, and to this day, really great investment. I mean, there's a reason why you know Stripe is as valuable as it is, is because there's a lot of money in payment processing still, and being your own merchant obviously is where you can collect the most of it. But I got to ask, given the fact that you operate in the real world uh, with software, but with real world merchants and customers, you must have had to deal with the impacts of uh, COVID shutdown and having to help your customers survive. So, how did you help your customers kind of navigate and survive during the COVID shutdowns? And what new products kind of came about because of the shutdown? that were impacting those businesses that are still alive today and helping the company drive revenue moving forward. Yeah. Uh, COVID was a scary time for us, obviously. Uh, it's a very scary time for our customers. Uh, we basically overnight, we saw all of our businesses shut down and we had to go into this um, triage mode because they needed to like bulk cancel all future appointments. Uh, 
And like, we didn't have that feature. How would you want that feature? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and so we were all hands on deck to help them uh, every step of the way. And so whether it was, you know, canceling all their future appointments or it was helping them reopen in a safe way, um, like we created a, a feature for um, the COVID waivers and screening and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We invested a lot in our gift card functionality. Gift cards actually are not too common in like hair salons, for instance, they became way more popular uh, during COVID. Built some gift cards, enhanced our waitlist functionality um, so that could support like a walk-in type um, where people could social distance. Uh, and so really just, again, was listening to the market, listening to our customers and, and determining what we needed to build. Yeah. I love the fact that there are things that were being uh, demanded of you in a very short period of time that are were probably never on your product roadmap but were necessary to just keep your customers happy that obviously created these more aha moments of, wait, you know what? This could actually be something that our business could use one day, like a gift card creation tool or like an instant communication channel with mass distribution of like uh, loyalty or promotional stuff that these salons are going to use now when times are good, but when times are bad, they can also use it for updating their customers on, hey, you know, maybe there's a, a fire alarm that's going off and every appointment needs to be canceled that day. You know, those are one-off things, but it's a nice thing to have that was created by your team when times were obviously uh, a struggle. So obviously it worked out because the company has scaled rapidly since those early days. You've raised over a hundred million from top tier firms like Box Group, Index Ventures, Point72 and Bonfire. I mean, how have you been able to scale so rapidly and how have you been able to stick to your vision as more capital is poured into the business? Listening to podcasts from founders before I was a, a founder myself, like I, it, it seems like all these startups are, you know, overnight successes. Sean and I have been at this for eight years. Uh, it's been a long slog, uh, if I'm being honest. It's been a lot of work, a lot of brute force. You know, we've we've earned essentially our scale. It wasn't given to us. It wasn't. We didn't rely on luck to earn it. Uh, and so it was just a lot of hard work, uh, and still every day, despite you know having raised all that venture capital just means you have more expectations. So I, I think uh, a lot of that has just been being really, really thoughtful, uh, being customer obsessed, being product driven, and just being able to build the you know the type of company that you want to be an employee of. Yeah, no, for sure. And everyone takes the headlines and tech crunch and sees the $100 million raised and thinks, oh, wow, that happened overnight. But you and I both know these things take five, 10 plus years before any real success, in your opinion, is validated. So I appreciate you sharing that. You know, I got to ask, what's the long-term vision for Boulevard and how should people connect with you and your team if they're interested in working together? Yeah, absolutely. So long-term vision is uh, that we really want to make a dent in in consumer purchase behavior. Today, Boulevard is very much a B2B business, um, but we're going to be looking to be a little bit more consumer facing. We built Boulevard, you know, back when we were looking for an open table appointments, like that was like where we initially had started. Um, and we hope that we can get back to that. Um, and we just took a, a, a more capital efficient detour along the way to provide a lot of value to these, these businesses in the meantime. Anyone interested can can learn more about our company and to you know check out our, our job site uh, is uh, joinblvd, joinboulevard.com. Uh, you can learn all about the company, watch some videos about what we're up to and, and learn more about the team. I love that because uh, my barbershop is still using pen and paper and a ruler. And there's been several times I've walked in and there's like three people showing up for the same appointment. And the guy just looks at us and says, well, 
wait around, we'll figure it out. <laughs> and there's not a lot of hop. There's two unhappy people and one happy person in the chair. So I hope one day they figure out how to use something like Boulevard. But before we wrap things up, we always like to ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off, your favorite podcast. Favorite podcast. Uh, I'd have to say Assassins is, is up there. Uh, really, really great show. What's that one about? Startup life. Nice. All right. We'll have to check it out. Favorite newsletter or blog? Uh, I'd say Saster. I've, I've read that for so many years and, and continue to do so. It's just high quality content, super relevant. Always a classic. Next is your favorite tech gadget. I mean, I have to say the AirPods. <laughs> they, they transformed my life. Still an oldie, but a goodie. Absolutely. My wife always says, um, are you listening to something? And I was like, no. Like, she's like, then why are you wearing the AirPods? I'm like, yeah. it just rests there. Like, it just, yeah. It's just a part of the body now, which is probably not healthy in the long term, but it is comforting. Uh, favorite new trend? People freaking out about AI. Uh, it's just, it's incredible to see the backlash. Um, and it's like, people are surprised, like it's something new. And it's like, we knew this was coming all along. Uh, so people are just freaking out. Um, and that it's, it's been funny to, to observe. Yeah, it's interesting when you say like freaking out. I think what you're referring to is like, it's not like this is the first time we've seen AI or heard about it, but it's now like impacting day-to-day like lives. I say when a parent sees their kid doing their homework with AI, then they start to freak out. Yes, but exactly. like when the parent is doing their job with AI, it's totally sweet. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> you know? exactly. And that's where I think we're getting to the point here now. That's funny. It's so much more accessible now, right? And like, it's people are like, oh God, like this is problematic. <laughs> right. Well, it's not behind the scenes, behind the computer anymore. It's now at the face of the computer. It's like, it's got the interface now where people are like, oh, this is real. I can touch it. Whereas before, if it was all behind the scenes of the code, you would never even thought twice about it. The next is your favorite book. Favorite book? Uh, hard things about hard things. I think right now uh, it's something that like it's a, it's a very cliche book. Read it several times, uh, but like I reread it again because especially in this macro environment, like things are super hard, right? And so just going back and, and reminding yourself, no matter how much VC uh, you raise um, or how big or how successful you're perceived to be as a company, it's still hard. It's a good level setting book to always have uh, on the side of your night table when you need it for a pick me up when things are hard and you need someone to like kind of share your you know, your struggles with uh, that come around obviously every so often these days. And last but not least, your favorite life lesson. Yeah, I, I think I mentioned it earlier, but like don't rely on luck. You have to manufacture your own luck. It's not given to you. You have to earn it. That's fantastic advice. And thanks so much for joining us in the tank today with co-founder and CEO of Boulevard, Matt Dana. Thanks so much, Matt. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot. And hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at Matty B. Cohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time.